Northeast Georgia History Center. This is Marie Walker, the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. And today I am going to be talking to Dr. Gertie about James Bond and the Cold War. So thank you for being with us, Dr. Gertie. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. As Marie mentioned, I'm Dr. Philip Gertie. I'm an associate professor of history in the History, Anthropology, and Philosophy Department at the University of North Georgia on the Gainesville campus. And I generally specialize in the 19th century, but I've dabbled into a lifelong interest from us from now a scholarly perspective, and that's James Bond, the novels, the movies, and all the other types of James Bond stuff that's out there. So today we're going to be looking at James Bond and the Cold War. So can you give us a little bit of background just to James Bond, and then can you give us a little bit about some background into the Cold War and then how they they mix? (laughs) Definitely, because when you look at the novels and even the movies, there is, yeah, this just interconnectedness you can't get away from. So starting with Ian Fleming who the author of the Bond novels, he um, served obviously during World War II. He was the assistant to the Secretary of the the War, I think. And in that regard, he was in charge at times of what we would consider to be intelligence and even what some people would call sort of black ops or special operations. And so he really had this personal upfront experience with these things that he then later carries into Bond. And then when you get into the novels, you know, the movies don't reflect this as much, like I just said, but the novels themselves up until Thunderball are all a miss really right in, or set right in the Cold War. And what by that, I mean, that the bad guys are the Russians, right? They're the Soviets. So after Thunderball, he kind of moves into what's known as um, Spectre, Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge and Extortion. It's a, I know it's a long name, but that's sort of a it's a criminal organization. So Fleming, even himself in his writings, moves away from that, that focus. But even when Spectre's involved, the background is the Cold War, whether Spectre is trying to steal nuclear weapons or other things along those lines. And then when you get into the movies, interestingly enough, from really, I would say most of the, actually all of the Sean Connery movies, the whereas in the novel, sort of the bad guy, so to speak, would have been the Soviets, they're not, they're Spectre. And then you can almost trace, I don't want to go into it like too much, belabor it, but you can almost trace, yeah, the movement of the Cold War sometimes through then the novels and the movies. I know the Roger Moore movies do engage the Soviets more, though they're not really, the Soviet Union is not the enemy, the Soviets and the Cold War is always in that background as well. And then you move on to post-Cold War and even the themes that are out there in the world manifest in the James Bond movies and continuation novels and things like that. So it's hard to actually look and study Bond in whatever media it's it's in and not see the connection to the Cold War. So let's take a nice deep dive into the first few movies, because that's probably where the connection is very, very strong, right? Right. Because there have been so many James Bond movies and novels, as you were saying, it just it kind of goes off into its own realm for for a little bit. But looking back on those those first three, you can can really trace some very uh, perhaps I don't know if you would call it heavy handed because it's kind of almost Mm -hmm. this like fictional fantasy version of what's going on. Right. Um, But there's still definitely connections to like 
the politics of the day. So if you look at the first James Bond film, Dr. No, which was right. came out in 1962, based on the 1958 novel, can mm-hmm. you walk us through that one? Because at that point, Dr. No, the scientific genius, he's been right. on destroying the U.S. space program. So this is in right. the you know space race with the Soviets, right? So Right, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I was sort of getting at, right? That even though the Soviets and aren't sort of actors in that story, they're replaced by, whereas in the novel they were. So Dr. No was actually financed by the Soviets. And so he's intentionally building this program to disrupt the, spa- the space race, right? <laughs> and, and paid by the Russians to do so. Whereas in the movie, yeah, he's an agent of Spectre. And so the goal is kind of the same, but you don't have that Soviet influence. But you're exactly right, Maria, that or Marie, that the backdrop is there. Sorry, Um, but the backdrop is there. And, you know, 1962, that's the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, right, it's it's all at the height and to build that suspense. And I was wondering if maybe Eon Productions, um, Everything or Nothing, which is Cubby Broccoli and um, Harris Halsman sort of buy the rights to the Bond movies. Bond is sort of escapist entertainment, right? So you wouldn't want to, I don't think they would want to replicate the novel too much, right? Because including the Soviets right, during the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis as the bad guys <laughs> is probably not sort of the best thing for escapist entertainment. And I think, you know, there's other factors they probably believed at the same time. But certainly, yeah, you can see again, in that background, how the Cold War figures into everything. And I think, too, part of this, and it's, and it's an even sort of a subplot, is Bond, right, is a British agent. So you look at Britain post-World War II and Britain's role during the Cold War. And it's one really, and you get this sense as the novels go on, in a sense, certainly in the movies, that it's a way of keeping the British relevant, keeping them important, even though their global presence as, right, you have this sort of battle between the Soviet Union and the United States is lessened to a degree. I mean, there's a, in, a wonderful line in the novel, You Only Live Twice, where or a character sort of says that, says, well, what do the English do anymore, right? <laughs> and what's confronts Bond with that. So I think you can see through the movies, right, this sort of all these sort of pieces that fall into place. Because we know that, you know, James Bond is a British secret agent working for MI6 yeah. under the codename 007. But when you watch right. the movies, I almost forget that to the point where I'm just like, oh, yeah, like he's an American because he's obviously involved with all the American <laughs> stuff. And I'm like, right. no, he's not. <laughs> he's not right. It almost I don't mean this in certainly a bad way, but it almost almost overstates then the role of Britain. Right. Mm-hmm. At least when you watch it from an American perspective. Right. Of course, the British perspective <laughs> Be a little different, but um, certainly from our perspective, I think too. And I wonder if there's not that whole thing is in some sort of business aspect, as is at, by that time these movies, right? The main draw, or one of the main sort of ways of gauging how successful a movie is going to be is how well it does in the United States, and that's certainly something I know Broccoli and Saltman kept a, a close eye on, right? And I think it's the the third film, Goldfinger which right. came out in 1964, where the powerful tycoon Goldfinger. Right. Uh, 
wanted to basically steal all of the gold from Fort Knox and obliterate the world economy, (laughs) which it seems like it's a very U.S. focused plot. (laughs) Yes, it is. Right. And where where it's set and everything, right, is very U.S. focused. Yeah, he wants wants to, in the novel, he wanted to steal it, but that's so unfeasible, right, that, yeah, they want to irradiate it, right? They want to explode the nuclear bomb and make it all useless for so Goldfinger then can benefit from it. Yeah, again, that's another sort of contrast with the novel where Goldfinger is a smirch agent. So he's again financed and operating on behalf of the Russians um, in that for sure. Another interesting one is from Russia with Love. Now the movie, right, and the novel are quite different in that same respect in that in the movie, it's Spectre who is orchestrating the whole thing. Whereas in the novel, it is Smirsch, which is Smirtspionum with his right, death despise. It's this um, Soviet, probably the most you know feared and deadly of all the Soviet groups. And the idea is to discredit not just Bond. Bond becomes almost the pawn in this Russian attempt to demoralize MI6. So they're going to do that by having Bond caught up in this very embarrassing, almost like a a uh, honeypot type of um, operation. Yeah, but in the movie, that's not the case at all. It's just Spectre. So you see that contrast. What's kind of interesting about the novel, though, is Bond doesn't show up in it till the novel's almost half over. Yeah, Ian Fleming goes through meticulous detail in showing, I know, the operations of the Soviets in planning this major intelligence thing. So you see all the different groups, all the intelligence groups, you you see all the leaders, all the, the, the careful planning that goes into it. So it's kind of interesting. I think in some ways it's like a window into, I mean, it's Ian Fleming writing it, so you can't write, it's a good primary source, but it's a primary source of how Ian Fleming and perhaps the Russians are perceived not as what it was. But at the same time, it's very interesting because Fleming did his research and Fleming, I mean, he had been a correspondent in Moscow at one time. So he was very familiar, I think, with a lot of this stuff, for sure. But yeah, that Cold War just keeps reoccurring, right? Do you think that as the novels and the movies continue throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and then kind of the Cold War theoretically ends with the right. fall of the Berlin Wall, but then James Bond still continues. Do you see, yes. Even though the Cold War has like Technically, we as historians, we put a nice little bow on it and we put a date on it. Do you think that that still influences the legacy of Bond? I do. I do. There's this wonderful scene in Goldeneye. Have you have you seen Goldeneye? It's Pierce Brosnan. It's okay. (laughs) It's that's one of the things that happens when you get immersed in stuff. There's this sort of assumption that everybody's seen everything, right? So Goldeneye is Pierce Brosnan's first movie, and it's a post Cold War movie. And the main sort of villain is Alec Trevelyan, who had been an MI6 agent, but then had faked faked his own death and become sort of this criminal, charge of this criminal organization. And there's this one scene where Bond meets him and Bond thinks he's dead. And they meet in this old Soviet, I know it's like a junkyard for old Soviet memorials and statues and things. And it's a really kind of, it's really interesting right and it's it's almost on an emotional level because you can see in it everything that had been during the cold war was now gone right it's almost it's almost like it's like a memorial it's almost like a like a you know like a trash place like a junkyard right and in it bond and trevelyan have this little go-between 
where you can clearly see that Bond is still sticking to those Cold War ideas of nation, of right, of certainty, of truth. And Alec Trevelyan is saying the opposite. He's saying there are no good guys. There are no bad guys. All that, that world is gone in which you lived. And you see that contrast that comes out of it, right? And I think you can even extend that into even the Craig films, how at times there is this murkiness to it. What's right? What's wrong? Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? I mean, one of the characters, Mathis, in the Quantum of Solace, clearly comes out and says, when you know, when you get older, the good guys and the, the heroes and the villains get all mixed up, right? And that you don't know who's who. You don't know what is what. Whereas, yeah, if you look back nostalgically at the Cold War, which is an odd thing to do, there is almost this kind of two sides, right? A way of framing. Maybe that's the way to put it. Is It's a way of framing things. It's a way of framing dichotomies, in, I guess, framing things into dichotomies, you know, um, capitalism, communism, you know, good guys, bad guys, that type of thing. I think even M mentions in a Daniel Craig movie, I think she's exasperated with Bond and she says, God, I miss the Cold War, right? Because of that kind of notion. Mm-hmm. Where there was us and there was them and like this right. was the right way to do things versus the, the wrong way to do things versus everything getting right. murky. Right, exactly. And there's also, you could almost say, there's a linear structure to it, right? And that the world is moving, at least from the United States' point of view, you want the world to move in that continued straight line toward liberalism, right? democracy, right? That there's, it's almost, it's almost an inherent inevitability that needs to be pushed along. And then once you're in the post-Cold War, it's, I think it's harder to sort of look at things in those ways, right? And then you look at what happens after, man, the war on terror and um, the various wars in Afghanistan, right? They're all they're all sort of along that same idea of trying trying to get our minds around and frame what they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you think James Bond, perhaps being the most famous, not actual spy, but spy of mm-hmm. all time, has influenced how we think spies operate as yes. a popular culture? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I fell for that as a kid, right? <laughs> this is spies. Wait, I think it's kind of funny. Yeah, I think that's right. They, we have, we think we know yeah, spies and what spying is all about, because we have this hero that goes out and makes it look so interesting. And so in the case of Bond, it's it's funny because it's so commodified as well. Right. I mean, Bond is he dresses really nice. He's always driving an Aston Martin. There's there's this sort of right this. I don't know how to phrase it. It's like an, it's an elitism, but it's a like a I don't know, interesting, sexy elitism. of sort. right. You don't it doesn't really. That's not how spies are, <laughs> but that's how they're sort of framed, right? And it's not this high adventure, but I think certainly it's easy to think that that's the way it is. I would imagine, and it's not one thing I've studied enough, but I would imagine from what I have connected to, to my in, interest in Bond, is spying's a pretty mundane kind of career, right? And I think Ian Fleming, even in the early days, wanted Bond to be very mundane, so when he wasn't on a mission, it was a very boring lifestyle. And so I think that kind of gets forgotten in, in this sort of idea of, you know, oh, come be, work for a CIA, work for MI6, and you're going to have nothing but adventure and good guys and bad guys, right? And then the sort of whole gender aspects of Bond as well. Mm-hmm. Because there's very much the, they're labeled action adventure movies. Yes. Versus what a spy would actually do, which I assume is a lot of just sitting and waiting and listening and <laughs> yes, researching. Right. 
and reading and yeah, yeah. exactly exactly and um, watching yeah it would be again I would think very mundane unless I well mundane compared to Bond's adventures yeah. but certainly it seems like it would be kind of a neat field <laughs> to work at, in those various things yeah now with James Bond being such an iconic pop culture figure is there anything that is of Bond that has just kind of worked its way into normal life here in the United States? That's very, that's an interesting question. So in what sense do you mean? Like in just things like products or just the wider world of Bond? I mean, take for instance, like Bond video gaming or something along those lines, right? There's a whole, almost from the minute you have personal computers out there, you have James Bond games out there. And I think there's this expectation, yeah, that the games are always going to keep up and be the best of the best. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been one in a while, though. I think the last one maybe was 2012, mm-hmm. but across platforms. So going back to the old, right, Apple IIe and Commodores, probably all the way through to, to PlayStations, there's this presence of Bond. I think also in products that Bond almost becomes a brand unto itself. So you have Bond Cologne, you have Bond. I mean, name your product. There's a Bond version of it even hot wheels you know will always make right the the bond cars so i think in that sense that it's and it's when you study it you kind of realize this too that it it's so multi-dimensional and complex because it changes with the time and integrates into every generation in some way and i think you can see that even in the character of bond kind of himself, right? That he changes from the Connery era into the Moore era, and you can trace those changes. So for instance, Star Wars comes out, right? In the late 70s, and then the Bond movie, not by coincidence, is set in space, right? (laughs) So the movie Jaws comes out, and then one of the villains in the next movie, The Spy Who Loved Me, is Jaws, right? Um, the, The sort of henchman Jaws. So I think there's always this attempt to also connect to things going on that makes Bond integral into like you're saying into sort of various aspects of life or worldviews if anything else right yeah so also thinking you're just like some of the iconic lines of bond like oh bond, james bond yeah i have a license yeah. to kill and like Shake i guess i just never connected it like it was like it was from that but i've heard those say right like so much to where definitely i had a student it's this semester actually in the because i'm teaching james, james bond class right now and he's a bartender and he was telling me, because I was thinking, oh, because of the Vesper Martini that came after came out because of Casino Royale. And I was just jokingly, I said, I bet you a ton, all of a sudden you had a ton of people ordering those. But he was he seriously said, yeah, that's actually true, <laughs> that it does even have that kind of impact. Yeah. So what do you think is the future of James Bond? That is such an interesting one. It's one I think about a lot <laughs> because especially with the no time to die and, and how that ends and, and even the whole series of movies that Craig does. So if you watch Casino Royale and how Bond is in that movie and then how he is in no time to die, there's a definite change there. But I wonder what happens now, right? If they're going to reboot, how do you reboot? And also there's so many things have changed. I mean, we could spend a whole podcast just on gender and James Bond, right? In, in female roles in James Bond and how, and this is one thing I often find kind of frustrating because you would expect, again, talking about kind of a linear structure that the older the movies, you know, the less complex the female characters, the less role they have. 
they're stereotyped a certain way. And you would think that changes over time, which it does to a degree, but not as much as you would expect in that you still have, even in No Time to Die, I, I'm astonished by how at the end you still have Bond, right, going off to fight the villain while the perfectly capable new 007, who's female, leaves with Madeline and, and, and the child, right? And so it's it's still stuck, I think. It's still trying to figure out which direction to kind of go when it comes to things like gender. But then also in a world that's increasingly changing, right? I mean, we're feeling so many of the effects of, you know, on a, I guess I mean on a level of geopolitics, but also with COVID, I mean, so many things going on. And one thing about the Bond movies is they were always able to kind of tap into those. But I, yeah, I wonder where they go now, right? Mm-hmm. Do they just kind of reboot and go back and try to keep things simple or do they embrace this complexity? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a very, very difficult thing to do as a filmmaker because we have to remember these are films as well, right? Mm-hmm. So they have to have scripts that make sense. They have to have all of the practical elements come together. So I, yeah, I wonder, I'll be interested in who the next Bond is. I think that'll be a nice, that'll be an indicator of, of where things are probably going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who would you like to see as James Bond? I've been thinking about this. I, I would love to. He's, he's older, but Idris Elba, you know, Idris Elba, um, he's a, an English actor. And he was popular in Luther, was one of, I think, the series that he made his name. And I think he would be just a fantastic James Bond. But James Bond's supposed to be, and if you go back to the novels, he's 35 or something. It kind of goes back to our, our spy question earlier right roger moore you know breaking on 60 or something playing james bond is <laughs> real spies here right <laughs> right they have sort of a shelf life i think in in this sense even bond is supposed to have a shelf life i think there was a mandatory requirement in the in the novels that a double o can't be more than 45 years old so interest mm-hmm. elba i think it's already late 40s maybe so he if he he would probably if they did choose him, I'm not sure how many movies he would do, but I would love to see Idris Elba's James Bond. Yeah. yeah. Who do you think it has been your favorite James Bond so far? Oh, that is so hard <laughs> because, and I think it brings home the historical context, right? That each one is, is so historically contextual that it's hard to pick a favorite because they represent the time period they come from so much. I grew my first, the first Bond that when I was young was Roger Moore. And so at the time, I thought Moore was just was just spectacular, which now when I look back, it's so at times it's I think he's great, but so much kind of humor and lightheartedness and right. And <laughs> just the one liners and everything. I, you know, if I had to pick a, gosh, this is so tough. I do like Daniel Craig. I think mm-hmm. the depiction there is is sort of realistic. It brings back some tension that maybe wasn't there in the um in the Moore movies. And Brosnan was, I think, spectacular. I, I don't dislike any of them. Even George Lazenby, I think, in the one movie he did on Her Majesty's Secret Service did a good job. But I think if I'm going to, when I, I guess I'll judge it by how often I can rewatch a movie. And even though I can rewatch them all, I think I come back to rewatching the Craig ones more than I probably do um, other ones. Yeah. I think my first movie, I went to the movie theater to see a Bond movie. I'd seen him before on TV, but the first movie theater one was A View to a Kill with Roger Moore. So at the time, I thought that was the best Bond movie ever. And it's okay, but it's probably not the best Bond movie ever. Yeah. So just depends. 
on my mood too, I should say. Because yeah. <laughs> I have to admit the Craig movies are a bit, they can get a bit heavy, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want that lighthearted bond, yeah. And a good Pierce Brosnan movie or Roger Moore movie. <laughs> so do you have any final thoughts for our listeners today about James Bond, the Cold War, and, and the future of the uh, series? Yeah, I do, actually. I think if anybody's interested in learning about the Cold War, right, the Bond novels are great in movies, right, are a kind of a great window into that. And it's one cool thing about history, especially I do what's known as cultural history. So mm-hmm. where everything becomes, right, a good source. So it doesn't have to involve just, you know, studying and in reading academic books, but you can actually go into the time period through the, the primary source, which is what these novels and movies are, and then appreciate everything that it is for that. And then, yeah, if you can do your, you know, get some good books on the Cold War and then watch the Bond movie, you'll see it in a different light and you'll see those connections. And it makes that journey actually a little, a little more fun because they're not timeless mm-hmm. in that they do come from that particular period. Yeah. I also sort of think it's neat that this type of thing can explode into a field of academic study. Yeah. You know, I think that's when I mentioned that I, I study James Bond, there's always this sort of <laughs> sideways look like, well, what do you mean? And I think it's, yeah, sometimes it's hard to appreciate again, that, that we can study history through all kinds of fun stuff, mm-hmm. that it doesn't always have to be these traditional ways of looking at it, that there's so many windows into the past. Oh, I think that is the perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Gertie. You're uh, welcome. My pleasure. Very fascinating. <laughs> Thank you so much. I had a I had a fun time. And then I again, it's a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of THENAGAIN. Thanks, y'all. 